continuing in our series on the Gospel of John. And today we are focusing in on John chapter 12 and part 4, the day Jesus hid. Would you bow with me once more? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as you have laid it upon my heart, that you would speak through me, your servant, that the words would be yours, and that by your power you would take this word and apply it to each person listening here today, and that, Father, we would receive it as from you, and that we would respond to it as you would have each one of us respond. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me now this morning to John chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, we'll begin looking at verse 35 of John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 35. Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. And undoubtedly, the question would have spread through the crowd like wildfire. Where is Jesus? The people were certain that Jesus had been there teaching just a few minutes earlier. But now, he and His twelve disciples were nowhere to be found. They were simply gone. Likely children and young men would have begun running up and down the narrow streets and back alleys of Jerusalem looking for him. But Jesus was nowhere to be seen. He had vanished without a trace. It was as though he had deliberately hidden himself from them. But it begs the question, where was Jesus hiding? And more importantly, why? Why would he hide himself from the crowds now? Because after everything that Jesus had done over the past three and a half years of his ministry, his popularity had just reached an all-time high. The miraculous signs that he had performed, and especially the recent raising of Lazarus from the dead, had the crowds literally buzzing. They were seeking Jesus out at every turn. Then with Jerusalem already packed with pilgrims from all over the nation gathering for the Feast of Passover. When they had heard that Jesus was riding towards Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, they had recognized this as a coming out party of sorts. They recognized, many of them, the prophecies of Zechariah. And so they flocked to the road coming down off the Mount of Olives. They lined the roadway. They laid their coats down on the road as they would for a conquering hero and king. They got Hosanna, pardon me, they got palm branches and sang Hosanna. And here we see the excitement, the anticipation of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem has reached a crescendo. And there they are, praising him like a conquering king. Hosanna, they had shouted. Blessed is he who comes In the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. And John chapter 12 verse 19 tells us that even the Pharisees, who so desperately wanted to get rid of Jesus, wanted to get rid of the competition, this upstart rabbi who was undermining them at every turn, even they lamented, look at how the whole world has gone after him. And verse 20 continues, 
that the Greeks, famous for their intellect and wisdom, even they were seeking Jesus out to speak with him. We know from elsewhere that even King Herod Antipas had heard of Jesus' fame, and he too wanted to see him perform a miracle. Yes, we see Jesus of Nazareth had gone from just a regional hero into a full-fledged national superstar. The capital of Jerusalem was simply abuzz with the name of Jesus. The people just couldn't get enough of him. And now this begs the question, wasn't this exactly what Jesus wanted? Didn't he desire that the nation of Israel would believe that he was the Messiah and crown him as their king? Well, we know for certain that this is exactly what Jesus' 12 disciples thought. They were even arguing um, amongst themselves about who would get to sit at the left and right hand of his throne when he entered his kingdom. And yet the scriptures tell us that here, at the height of his fame, at the pinnacle of his popularity, Jesus hid himself from them. It doesn't say exactly where he went, but it's likely that he went back to Bethany, to the home of his close friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So I ask again the question, why at the peak of his popularity did Jesus hide? The first reason, I believe, is this. Jesus hid because he knew the people fundamentally misunderstood the Messiah. You see, the Jewish people of Jesus' day were extremely externally and worldly-minded. And so when they read the scriptures that spoke of the coming Messiah, all they could think of was a physical king establishing a physical kingdom. And so when Jesus continuously preached throughout the nation, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they translated that through their filters, and all they heard was, the kingdom of Israel will be restored. And so to them, they reasoned that if Jesus was in fact the Messiah, he would use all of his mighty miracle-working power to defeat and drive out the Roman oppressors and restore the throne of David as the king of Israel. And we see the first sign of this back in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And there we see that immediately following one of Jesus' most famous miracles, where he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and over 5,000 people were fed that day from one boy's lunch, that following that amazing event, we read this, John six fourteen. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so here we see that earlier in his ministry, that Jesus withdrew from the crowds because he recognized that they fundamentally misunderstood what the Messiah was all about. They wanted to take him and make him king over them by force. If he can feed all of these people, then he can lead us against the Romans, is what they thought to themselves. And so Jesus withdrew himself from them because they misunderstood who the Messiah was and what he was to do. And so it's highly likely that, again, here in chapter 12, Jesus knowing, remember, Jesus knows the thoughts of men. He knew the thoughts of the crowd. Jesus knowing that they again intended to take him and make him their king by force, 
he hid himself from them because he would not allow anything or anyone to derail the Messiah's true mission. The second reason that I believe Jesus hid is because he also knew that as they misunderstood who the Messiah was, they also misunderstood the Messiah's mission. You see, the Jews thought they knew Jesus' mission, but they were thinking way too small. In John chapter 12, verses 23 to 28, Jesus says that the hour has come. And then he compares himself to a seed which must go into the ground and die in order to produce new life. He then concludes in verse 27. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. In this we see Jesus declare that the very reason for which he came was not to be lifted up on a throne, but to be lifted up on a cross. Not to be crowned with gold, but to be crowned with thorns. Not to be showered with cheers, but with curses. For you see, Jesus had not come to do something as easy as driving out the Romans and establishing an earthly kingdom populated by sinners who would inevitably mess things all up all over again. No, you see, what Jesus was capable of, driving out the Romans was easy. That was kid stuff. That's the only thing the Israelite people could think about was getting rid of the Romans, restoring their kingdom. But Jesus was doing something far greater, something far more difficult than simply a temporary military victory and a temporary kingdom. Jesus had come to drive out Satan, the prince of this world, through the extraordinary difficult task of breaking the curse of sin by taking humanity's justly deserved judgment upon himself, dying one death so that the many could live, all in order to establish God's heavenly, eternal kingdom populated by the forgiven, the redeemed, the sanctified children of God who would enjoy his glorious presence forever. But just as the Jews misunderstood Jesus' mission, I know that many people, even professing Christians, misunderstand Jesus' mission as well. One of the primary ways that I see the Western church making this mistake is that like the Jews, we get so caught up on the external and the physical realm that we forget the internal and the spiritual realm. We've subtly embraced the notion that Jesus' primary mission is to bless our physical lives with physical things. The Jews wanted more bread to eat. We want more money to spend. The Jews wanted the Romans gone, and we may want our preferred government in power. But friends, listen, 
Though Jesus graciously cares for our daily bread, and he is able to physically heal and provide us with the necessities of this life, let me ask you, what good are those things? What good are those things to us if our souls are not saved? What good would it have been for Israel if he had driven out the Romans, established an earthly kingdom in Israel, he was on the throne of David, but they had died in their sin? What good would it have been for them? And as, as Jesus said to them in verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. Friends, which life do you love the most? Which life do you love the most? This temporary life on earth, the one that is fading away as the clock ticks, as our heart beats, this temporary life which is fading away, is this the life we love most? Or is it the eternal life, the one that waits for us in heaven? Which one are you living for? And fair warning, to live for this life requires nothing much on your part. To live for this life requires no service and no sacrifice. We can just keep doing exactly what we're already doing. We don't have to change at all. But to live for the next life, to live for eternity, that requires something on our part. That means following Jesus. That means following Jesus wherever he leads. And yes, that requires service. And yes, that requires sacrifice. Perhaps the greatest lie that Satan has ever sown in the Western church is that we can call ourselves followers of Christ without any service to Christ or sacrifice for Christ. Remember that Jesus was going to the cross when he spoke these words. He was going to the cross when he said, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. Jesus was going to the cross, a sacrifice for the world, willingly giving himself up. And so too, we must willingly go to the cross. We must willingly lay down our lives for Jesus so that God will raise us up with Jesus. One powerful example of someone who did just that is Florence Nightingale. Florence was born in Florence, Italy, the city she was named for in the year 1820. She was born into a very wealthy English family. She traveled and attended parties with the chosen of society. There was no luxury that was withheld from her in her status in life. But when she was 16 years old, she received a divine call. On February 7th, 1837, she wrote in her diary, God spoke to me today, and he called me into his service. At first, she didn't know exactly what God wanted her to do, but she soon began to think about nursing. Her family was scandalized by this because in the early 1800s, nurses were considered unskilled workers and had a reputation for drunkenness and promiscuity. Proper ladies kept fine houses, gave parties, and made brilliant conversation, playing the perfect hostess. That was destined to be her role in life. A nurse was beneath her station. 
But despite her family's many objections, she carried on with her plans. And she later wrote in her diary, There was never any vagueness in my plans or ideas as to what God's work was for me. But still it took time. Nine years later, in 1850, she wrote again in her diary, God called me in the morning, and he asked me, would I do good for him alone, without reputation? And later that year, she visited a Lutheran community in Germany, where she observed the pastor and deaconess working for the sick and the deprived, alone and without reputation. She marked this as the turning point of her life. She soon became director of a home for invalid gentlewomen, where she was serving when the Crimean War broke out in 1854. When she heard about the deplorable conditions on the front lines, Nightingale took 38 nurses with her to see what they could do, and they found things even worse than they had heard. They witnessed filth, infection, and disorganization. Shiploads of desperately needed medical supplies sat unused in the harbor while wounded soldiers died all because some official had not filled out the proper paperwork. In that environment, 42% of the wounded men never recovered. While Nightingale and her nurses got right to work, organizing the barracks hospital, providing supplies by cutting the administrative red tape, providing reading and recreation rooms for the patients, and writing letters home to their loved ones. But over all of that was the tender care they provided the wounded soldiers. Many of them maimed, burned, or horribly disfigured. All received direct and tender care. The most wounded and the dying received care by Nightingale's own hands. Her efforts brought remarkable results. The death rate among the wounded dropped from 42% all the way down to 3%. The soldiers adored her and they christened her the Lady of the Lamp for the Turkish lantern that she carried on her midnight rounds. In this way, Florence Nightingale brought the light and the love of Jesus into a dark and hateful place. A place of misery and death was transformed into a place of healing and hope. Because she followed Jesus wherever he led her, wherever he called her, she willingly left behind a life of luxury and ease in exchange for a life of service and sacrifice. And though God asked her if she would do good for him alone and without reputation, don't miss this. Because of her obedience, Jesus' words came true that my father will honor the one who serves me. And today, Florence Nightingale is hailed around the world as the founder of modern nursing. All of us, in some way, have been the recipients of her faithfulness and her obedience. All of us have benefited from the care of a nurse who has followed in her footsteps. But not only is Florence Nightingale's famous around the world today, not only is her name known by almost everyone, I believe that what she has received in heaven, the honor the Father bestows upon her, when she entered glory because of her obedience, I believe that it will make all of the accolades of this world as though they were nothing. In comparison, friends, Jesus' words are not easy, but they are the words of life. Following Jesus' pathway is not a smooth ride through life, but it is the only way to heaven. Please do not misunderstand this. 
In no way is Jesus saying that we must work our way to heaven. But what he is saying is that those who truly believe in him through faith, they will follow his pathway of sacrificial service to him and their fellow man. Simply put, it is the external evidence of the internal transformation. And so here we see this incredible example and the call of Jesus. How will we respond? And so we see that Jesus hid because they misunderstood his mission. And then thirdly, we see that Jesus hid because he knew that despite believing in the miracles, the people still did not truly believe in him. Don't miss this. They believed in what he was capable of doing, but they did not believe in him. One of the greatest indictments in all of scripture is John chapter 12, verse 37. It's one of the most shocking verses you can read anywhere. And it says this. Even after Jesus had done all the miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. I have difficulty wrapping my head around this verse. How could they have, with their own eyes, seen the miraculous signs and wonders? How could they have heard Jesus teaching with their own ears and still not believe? But here we see that the people had reached a point where they had seen and heard and experienced more than enough in order to persuade them to truly repent of their sin, believe, and follow Jesus. In fact, that generation received more divine revelation and saw firsthand more miracles than any other generation before or since. They saw even more than the generation that experienced the Exodus. These people, they literally had God in the flesh before them, speaking to them, healing them, and still they do not believe. Quite simply, they had decided not to believe. Their unbelief was an act of the will. Their attitude of unbelief reminds me of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, where it says that following each of the first number of plagues, initially Pharaoh relented. Yes, I'll let the people go, but then it says he hardened his heart. But then following the first series of plagues where he hardened his own heart, then the last couple of plagues, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I think much the same thing happened to this generation as well. First, it was they. They hardened their hearts. They wouldn't see. And then finally, they couldn't see. They were blind. They knew it. And still, they refused to enter the light. And this is why Jesus said to them, Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. Jesus is the light. Put your trust in him while you have him. In other words, tick-tock, tick-tock, time is running out. This life is not infinite. It is running out. Jesus says, put your trust in me while you have me, while the opportunity is still right in front of you. Put your trust in me. Believe. Time is running out. Well, I think the story is that it wasn't so much that they didn't believe as much as it was they wouldn't believe. And there's a story told of a grade two class. 
And this grade 2 class had just had their class photo taken, and the teacher was trying to pitch it to the children to encourage them to get all of their parents to buy one of these pictures. And she was saying things to them like, someday you'll look at this class photo and you'll say, why, there's Timmy. He's a doctor now. And there's Jennifer. She owns her own business. And there's Mary. She's married with two children. And just then, one of the boys in the back row piped up just loud enough to be heard. And someday we'll look at the picture and say, there's our teacher. She's dead now. (laughs) You know, there's one of those in every class, isn't there? There's one of those. But you know what? As rude as that remark was, the hard fact remains the statement is true. Just as certainly as the sun that is currently shining over our heads will set this evening and turn to night in just a few hours' time, it's a certainty. We set our clocks to it. We know exactly when it will happen. You can look it up on the weather app right now, the the time of sunrise, the time of sunset. It's a certainty. We know it will happen. So too, each of our lives, no matter how bright they are currently burning, no matter how healthy we may, we, we may feel, how vibrant, they will, unless Jesus returns first, they will descend into the darkness of death. The universal truth is self-evident. For someday, hopefully not too soon, but someday, people are going to look at my picture and they'll say, there's our old pastor. He's gone now. And of this, Hebrews 9.27 states clearly, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. You and I have one life to live, and we have only the allotted days in which to live it. We have heard the truth today, but don't assume that you have an indefinite, infinite amount of time to respond in genuine belief in Jesus and then faithfully live it out through service and sacrifice. Because, friends, listen, the truth is that we will all face death, and we will all stand before the judgment throne of Christ. If we have hidden in the darkness of disbelief from Jesus in this life, then we will be shocked to discover that Jesus will hide his face from us and declare, Depart from me, I never knew you. But friends, hear this, that if we exercise our will and we choose to enter the light of Jesus through putting our faith in him, through believing in him alone for salvation, if you have gone to Jesus, repented of your sins, asked him to forgive you, asked him to save you, asked him to enter your life, to make you new from the inside out and committed yourself to following him, wherever he leads, no matter the cost. Then Jesus, listen to this, he names you as a son of the light. He names you a daughter of the light. And as such, rather than hiding his face, when we enter his presence and we stand before the judgment throne, you will receive Jesus' embrace and the words, Welcome! Enter into the joy of the Lord. So let me just say, if you have not yet done so, I invite you today, I invite you, why not step into the light? Believe in Jesus today. Let's pray.
Father, there are moments in life where we are presented, rather where we are confronted with the truth. We've read here one such moment for a generation of people who had seen signs, miracles, wonders. They had seen things that would just boggle our imagination if we were to walk out today and see them happen in our time. And yet they witnessed them. Not only that, they heard your words. They heard your teaching. And on that day, Lord, they were confronted yet again with the reality that they were still in the dark. They had not yet put their belief fully in Jesus to save them. They were still looking at the external things, caught up on the outward trappings, and they missed the heart. And they made up their minds, and they were blinded and lost in the dark. And yet, Lord, here we sit today. We have heard your word, and we have this generation who has been presented clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ many times in many ways, and yet we too, so many times, Lord, willfully reject what you've offered us. But Lord, your word also promises that Yes, there are those who will reject. Yes, there are those who will stay in the dark. But to as many as received him, to those that believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Incredible. That today, because of your work on the cross of Calvary, because of your free invitation, that we can be counted as sons of the light, children of the light, children of God. And today we can accept that position by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that if anyone here today is feeling convicted by your Holy Spirit, that they would not allow the moment to pass them by, but that instead, in simple faith, that they would say, Lord, I don't know exactly what this means or what it looks like, but I am ready to step from the darkness into your light. I am ready to repent of my sins, to ask for your forgiveness to invite you to come in and take over, to change us, transform us from the inside out, and that from this day forward, I will follow you with my life, and that you will give me the grace and the strength to do so by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's ready to make that decision, that they would do so in faith. And Father, if there's anyone here today, Lord, who's feeling convicted, they have not been saying yes to you, as Florence Nightingale did, that wherever you lead, no matter how challenging the pathway, that they will say yes to you and to follow you, Lord, in your pathway, that even if it means serving you alone and without reputation, that we will say yes, trusting your word, that nothing done for you will be done in vain. You will add the increase. You will multiply our efforts, Lord, and that one day when we stand before your presence, we will hear the, com- the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Father, I pray that we would, each one of us, commit ourselves here today to following you, wherever and however you lead, and that we will follow. We ask that you would work in this coming week, Lord. We ask that you would bring salvations to this town of Killarney, And that, Lord, if even this week you call us to go out in your name and to share the truth with someone we know, that our answer will be yes. 
and that you will give us the words to speak in that moment, Lord, that would penetrate the heart and that people would respond to the gracious gift of salvation. For, Lord, we don't want to just keep it to ourselves. We want everyone to be saved just as you do. So please work it out in your will and in your way, for we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.